Hey everybody, here's a bonus episode, just a conversation I had actually with my sister, who's also been watching lots of TV, and there are just so many shows that have come out, and I'm going to just try to get some of these conversations out there to touch on some of these other shows. Some of these shows potentially might be covered regularly in the future. For example, Barry might start doing week-to-week recaps of that, and We Own This City as well on HBO, another show that I'm interested in. But we discuss both The Return of Barry for Season 3, as well as Tokyo Vice, which just wrapped up this week as well. Spoilers throughout, specifically around Barry, so you may want to skip this conversation until you've seen the first episode of Season 3 of Barry. The Tokyo Vice conversation is mostly spoiler-free. We kind of talk about just some things that happen in the show, and maybe I'll continue to have these conversations with my sister here around shows that I don't get to cover in more detail. And stay tuned for Monday, another Better Call Saul recap episode, and Moon Knight, the finale of season one, which should be published next Wednesday. All right, hope you enjoy the conversation. Welcome, everybody, to another episode of Need Some Introduction. In today's episode, this is a bonus episode, so this is not part of our standard week-to-week. We've been covering Better Call Saul and Moon Knight, which is wrapping up next week. But there's just so many things that have come out in the past month. An unbelievable amount of shows have premiered and come back in the past few weeks. So I've been watching a lot of them. And I brought in a new guest, a new contributor, someone I've known literally my whole entire life, (laughs) my sister, (laughs) Celia. Thank you. This is so fun. I love it. We have so many things, a bunch of things that I wanted to talk about that might recommend for you. And I know you're watching some of them already, so maybe we'll have little digressions on them. And anything we don't get around to covering, I'm just going to cut out in the edit, by the way. So I think <laughs> I think what we're going to talk about primarily is going to be Barry. I also want to talk about Slow Horses on Apple Plus, which I know I've just shared my Apple Plus subscription with you, so I know you have it now, uh, which just wrapped up this week. And Tokyo Vice, which I know you haven't finished it yet, but you've watched most of it. And maybe we could talk about that for a little bit as well, because that's something I want to recommend in general. And the last thing, I don't think you've watched any of this, is... Did you watch or do you know uh, of We Own This City? I think it's called No, I haven't seen that. I've been watching Yellowstone. Oh, okay. So that took a lot of time. <laughs> Very uh, dramatic, but I like it. But I do love Tokyo Vice. Like, we could talk about Tokyo Vice. Yeah. So I'm watching a finale tonight, though. Yeah. Like, date night. This is what I've turned into date night is watching finales of things on television. Well, that, that's that's everybody's <laughs> life nowadays, I think. <laughs> You just rewatched the first two seasons of Barry in preparation for season three. I have not rewatched, but I, I loved the first two seasons. But my question for you is in rewatching those first two seasons, what did you get out of it? Did you pick up anything new or and did you appreciate anything differently this time around? I, I do appreciate things a second time around. So like I have a process where if I really love a show, say, you know, season four is coming up, I will watch all the seasons up to season season four in anticipation of season four. So I always get new things when I do that. I love the fact that like Barry will just be like doing some semi-mundane thing. And all of a sudden the scene turns into like an action film Mm -hmm. slash horror movie, like out of nowhere. And then the dread just builds throughout the scene. And it's not even a very long show, but it will, every time I watch it, which now has been twice, 
it kind of like knocks the wind out of me. I get like so excited. Mm -hmm. So they're really good at building up that kind of tension and just kind of smacking you with it, which isn't something that maybe you would expect from Barry. I didn't expect that from Barry. I'm not sure what I thought it was going to be when I started watching it. I got my thrills again. I like the character development of Barry's girlfriend also. Mm -hmm. It's hilarious. (laughs) Yes. And I love their acting. They're terrible acting yes. is hilarious. Like, I cannot stop laughing. I was just going to say, it's very hard, just to, to touch on that point, it's very hard to pretend to be a bad actor. So that what they're doing is actually very difficult. That's something, you know, that, like, should be appreciated because it's terrible. <laughs> yes. And then the only time the acting's, like, really good when they really melt your heartstrings is when they're in some sort of emotional turmoil. So it's not even acting. They're right. bleeding on stage And then it's like, oh, my God, they're such good actors. I love this. Right. Well, I think that's what they're trying to say. If the only time that they're actually good on stage is when they are representing something that's actually happening to them in life, I think that's what acting is, right? You have to channel your personal life onto the stage, which is, of course, the problem Barry has because he can't possibly, he's a a psychopath and he's trying to hide that from himself, which is very, very problematic when they're being like, you have to be more emotionally raw. You have to open up. And, you know, every single time he has like these honest moments is when he's remembering truly horrendous things like that first kill and everything, right? So he's he has to go through some really severe trauma. These actors are talking about like, I'm remembering when my kitten died when I was young. And he's like, I remember <laughs> killing somebody last week. You know, like it's it's a d- different degree of, of complexity, right? What you just said is interesting though, because what I wonder is, yes, Barry's a psychopath, but was he a psychopath? You know what I mean? Before he had to be Barry the killer because, you know, he came out of that situation in such a way where, you know, he had nowhere to go and he's clearly like having emotional distress and other issues. Yeah. Like, was he always a killer? Like, was he a psychopath before? Barry, the honest truth that he doesn't want to face is that he is a psychopath, right? His recollection of that first kill is not the trauma that he felt like, oh my God, I killed somebody. It was that he enjoyed it, right? So... Is that him confronting the fact that he's not a killer because he has no opportunities and because he's been trapped in this? He keeps telling himself that's why he is this person. But is that true? Or is he really someone who likes to kill? And he's also very good at it. I don't think he likes to kill. He not only looks like tortured by the fact that he does have to kill for, I guess, to support himself or just because what else is he going to do? He states that he doesn't like to kill. And as he kills more and more people, he does become more comfortable with it. Right. But does he like to kill? I'm not so sure. I- I'm torn on that because, like I mentioned before, he definitely has a conscience too, right? Like we see it in this episode three. And and I need to get your read on that, by the way. When he's talking to his girlfriend and uh, and other people as well, and he sees the kill shot, right? Like they go quiet and he sees like basically they've been shot in the head. Is this a fear that he is experiencing, that he is endangering their lives? Or is he fantasizing about killing them? I think that's intentionally ambiguous. When I saw that, I read it as he is anxiety ridden at this point. Like he can barely tell reality from what is not happening. So like it was a fear that he had already done it and this 
interaction they're having is possibly not even valid because right. it's already done. Right. He seems relieved when that's not the case. Right. Right. I mean, he, he's definitely relieved that he's not the, that the case that he didn't like snap again and like, you know, what he has done multiple times in the show. And he just comes out of this fugue state and everybody in the room is dead. Right. So I think he's glad that that didn't happen. I mean, the question remains as to whether he is afraid that they are in danger because they are near him or if they're they're in danger because he may kill them. That's the question I have, basically. <laughs> I think or both, he or both. thinks they're in danger because he may kill them. Yes, but I yes. still don't think he likes it. Well, I mean, he did say he liked it, right? He said he enjoyed his first kill, that he had a thrill. It was thrilling to him, right? And he killed the wrong person, too. That's very problematic. <laughs> right? so. Oh, no, he's clearly a psycho. What I was wondering is, like, is, is it linked it? to his circumstances? Like, could he have been like a lovely school teacher? who, I don't know, make just pottery on weekends had the circumstances been different for him because he's like malleable. He yes. seems to just be his environment. Yep. Like, I don't know if he makes a lot of his own choices. That is where he is correlated to an actor, right? Something that people describe when they do act, they gravitated to acting because of exactly that. They wanted to escape the person they were or they were confused. They're confused in the world as to how they're supposed to behave. Like they don't understand how to have healthy relationships with other people. So they act them out, right? It, you know, it's, it's about being a performer for that reason. So that's what's interesting about, like you're saying, Barry, I think, is this kind of empty vessel. So he like sees these actors and he goes, oh, like that's what I do every single day, right? But of course, because he is really acting every single day, he's terrible at acting on stage. <laughs> I also think that when he accidentally, you know, started acting and was like, oh, this is what I want to be. It was because people applauded him for it. Like, he's like, oh, I'm oh, good yes. at this. Yep. Yep. I don't know what I'm good at. So I'm going to be, uh, you know, hitman. But now he's up there and he's like, oh, I'm good at acting and I don't right. really like being a hitman. So I'm just going to be an actor. Right. Plus, that girl is really cute. For him, it was like win-win. It's almost like he wants to change his life because he does not make his own decisions, but I could do this instead. Just because he was standing on a stage and that happened. That's true. It's just that moment when he gets pressured onto stage, right? He's just going to do the hit. You're taking me all the way back to season one now, I forgot. He's, his first hit is that actor. And then he ends up having to do the improv and then he gets applause for it. And then he's thinking, A, oh, this is something I'm good at. Like you said, he's been just told what to do since he's been a soldier. And now he's been under the control of Fuchs now, who's been placing him in places, you know, with these hit jobs, pocketing most of the money too. That He's like such a sucker in a way because he doesn't know how to be an adult. He's only good at killing. <laughs> but a few things to touch on there. First of all, the girlfriend. What's, inter what's interesting about their relationship is in season one, you see him like idolizing her and she seems to be such... A, like almost stereotypically vacuous wannabe actress. She's not good as an actress or anything. And then they really humanize her in season two because it's really not her fault that he idolizes her and she's really not that great. He's the one who's putting that on her, right? It's not, she's not asking him to, you know, think of her as this incredible actress. That's something he's perceiving, right? I, I found it really kind of annoying in season one. And then I really found that they really humanized her in season two. And now in season three, at least so far, she seems to be insufferable. <laughs> <laughs> basically. <laughs> I like that she's insufferable. Yes, I agree. 
because you know this is doomed, okay? Yes, She's right. doomed just to be in contact with him. So you don't want like this really nice person to be doomed. You want like an insufferable person to be doomed. <laughs> right. So it's really entertaining. <laughs> like the more annoying she is, like the better the show feels to me. <laughs> and then uh, Fuchs has all the funniest scenes in it, like either when he is being tortured or I think maybe my the biggest laugh out loud moment I've ever had in the show was when Barry's like out on the patio at his apartment and Fugues inside and the people come in to like, and they're like killing Fugues and like strangling him with like a wire in the back and they drag him out of that the apartment. That was great. And he's like on the phone, totally oblivious to what's happening. I laughed so hard at that whole sequence. And Fugues is just like, <laughs> but, and Fugues, by the way, is such a screw up and such a mess and also such a monster, but he's so entertaining despite being like a truly terrible, terrible person. He is. And I also love, what is the other guy? Oh my God. He's so, he is the best character on the whole entire show. Is um, Noho Hank. Noho Hank. I love Noho Hank. Like oh I want to hang out with him yeah. just to watch him be absurd. It's great. And he's now in this new relationship and he seems like, have, have he's been such a clueless idiot up until now. He really seems to be much more comfortable and a little more on the ball. You know, like I almost picture last season, he would have, uh, when Barry shows up at his uh, house and he's asking for another job after he's he, like screwed up everything for him. And he basically just calls him out of it going like, wait a second, you came here to me? Like, you know, you, you almost got us all killed last time. I feel like that's not the Hank we would have seen. Like Hank like idolized Barry so much last season that he would be like, so glad to see you again. They feel like he has maybe turned a corner, but he is hilarious. Like that is an incredible performance by that guy. He's a really, really fun character. I mean, he's funny, but I think like, yes, he idolized Barry in a way because like he finds him interesting, you know, for so many obvious reasons in his head. But also at the same time, I feel like he's kind of like, I'm over you. <laughs> you know, that's enough of you. Right. He kind of messes everything up around him. Oh, my God. So absolutely. Yeah. It's annoying to have him show up on your doorstep for no reason or your patio, wherever. <laughs> right. Where do you think is going to happen there with, you know, Henry Winkler's character? So Gene confronts Barry at the end of the episode. But how do you think that Barry's going to fix this situation? I mean, Gene knows what's up, right? That was a shocking finale to season two, which of course we had to wait three years, three years for another season. It's crazy. But um, yeah, that was a shocking finale. And uh, now we know that Gene obviously knows what's up with Barry. And now he definitely knows what's up with Barry, given this particular episode. How do you think, uh, you know, this is total speculation at this point, but how do you think Barry's going to make it up to him he wants to make it up to him and, and how is gene does he really trust gene is not going to talk it's it's pretty crazy i, I do not understand how barry gets out of the situation basically i feel like barry rationalizes everything yeah. so he likes gene it's like this guy is you know someone who's going to give him a purpose in life he's going right. to be an actor now and whatever right. i don't think he wants to kill him so he's going to rationalize some way that he to make it up to him because he's basically saying, oh, don't kill me. I won't tell anyone. Obviously, he's not going to be able to live with that decision. There's no way he's going to be able to let this go. And in the back of Barry's head, he must realize this. But in the moment, he doesn't want to kill him. So he has to rationalize this way that he's actually going to make this up to him and it's all going to be okay, which I'm really curious about. What would that be like? 
that's and that's what I mean, right? Think about Barry's perspective. Gene, which was completely incompetent and inept with the handling of the gun, hilariously, by the way, hilariously, the gun like literally falls apart. But at the same time, he was ready to kill him, to shoot him. You're going to just let this guy go home now? Like, that doesn't seem like a good plan for Barry. I agree. That is completely delusional. This seems like a really, really bad plan on his part. But Barry's always at war with himself. Yeah. So in that moment, he had to rationalize not doing this thing that would have just been much easier than what I'm sure he's going to have to endure now. Right. I don't, I, Barry's going to have to kill him, obviously. But I think they're both buying time. That's a you good know, point. Yeah, I agree. Barry's buying time because he doesn't want to kill him right now. Yeah, yeah. And then he's buying time because he's got to say, you know, I'm not going to tell anyone and whatever. Of course. To get out of there. <laughs> right. Exactly. You have a professional killer and you're obviously very bad at this. So Barry's not such an idiot that he's going to just give this guy free reign. He's going to have to somehow control him. But inevitably, he's going to try to kill Barry or Barry's going to have to kill him, which is sad because, you know, we don't see Gene get killed off. But I would be curious to see how they're going to try to resolve this. I want to go back to something you said very, very early on, by the way. This season is almost entirely directed by Bill Hader himself. He's trying to, I don't think he was able to direct all these episodes, but he has said in interviews that if there's a season four, he wants to direct the entire thing. But he did direct this first episode, and it was a beautiful episode, by the way. The photography of like the, the, the desert and stuff was really well done. And I think he did a really good job with it, uh, I know especially with some of the tone shifts, you know, with the comedy and then the, the, the kind of horrific elements of the show. But the reason I want to go back to this is because you said something that I want to call out as a recommendation for you, which is that most of season two and season one were directed by Hiro Murai. And Hiro Murai also directed and still directs most of the episodes of Atlanta. Have you watched Atlanta? I have. And I was going to say that what you said is very true. It's something that's in kind of Hiro Morai's uh, wheelhouse. Very true of Atlanta, especially season two. Every episode of season two of Atlanta is basically a horror movie. You know, people are just like kind of walking down the street and then things get a little weird. And then all of a sudden at a moment, you're like, hold on a second. Is like someone going to die right now? <laughs> and of course they don't. <laughs> That's not the kind of show that Atlanta is. But there's this constant dread floating in the back of that show, even with the comedy. So it's a very interesting tone shift. But I did want to call that out because you mentioned how Barry has that going for it. Atlanta absolutely has that going for it too. Not so much this season, which is also mostly directed by Hiro Murai. But uh, does you know it's the, the tone is different this season three season three which is currently on the air and yet another thing of the hundreds of things that are on all came out at the same time. Is there anything else you want to touch on with Barry? Or if not, we can jump over to Tokyo Vice. Yeah, go to Tokyo Vice. All right, so this this is nuts. I, I do not understand how this happened. Last year when we had the podcast, we had like a dead spot. You know, I think it's because of the, the COVID. We couldn't think of anything to watch. We couldn't find anything to watch. And um, as a matter of fact, we had kind of a dead spot in January. And then Severance came in February and became hugely successful for us anyway, and in general became hugely successful. But there's relatively little things on the air. And I do not understand how these programmers are trying to find an audience and putting all these things on at the same time. But at the end of March, we had the Lakers show, The Winning Time on HBO, which I've been watching. And it's very uneven, but the show, the story is so interesting. It's such a fascinating story about the Lakers that I've been watching it through and it's about to wrap up soon. But that's one thing. Atlanta came back. Moon uh, Night has been on and we've been covering it. Of course, Better Call Saul is back, but we have, you know, Shining Girls just came on on uh, Apple TV. Apple TV alone has had three or four big shows come out, like Slow Horse has just wrapped up and, and I'll tell you a little bit about that one soon. 
you know, we have Barry's back. And that's just the tip of the iceberg. There's so many shows. I don't understand. There's Outer Range, which I've been watching, and I'll probably have a review for next week because it wraps up next week. And um, and then, of course, Tokyo Vice just wrapped up. But there's just so many shows. I'm not even talking about all the con man shows that were on, like, you know, Inventing Anna and the We Crashed documentary docuseries about WeWork and the one about Uber and the one about Elizabeth Holmes and the, you know, Theranos scams. That's just a whole subgenre in and of itself. And it's crazy that there's so many shows all coming out in one month. I'm like, A, why did you spread these out? And B, like it, it, these things are going to get bad ratings, I assume, because there's just too much competition. And then they're going to be like, oh, the, the shows were bad or whatever. It's not, not bad. There's 45 things on the air at the same time. Who's going to watch all this stuff? It's, it's insanity, really. It's totally crazy. And to that point, I think a show that got lost in the shuffle probably is Tokyo Vice, which I thought was really good. Uh, and this show, for anybody who's unaware, is produced by Michael Mann. Miami Vice, right? So this is Tokyo Vice. It is not, I think they were trying to pitch it as like, oh, he made Miami Vice. And now 30 years later, he's making Tokyo Vice. And it's like in the line with Miami Vice. It's really not. It's a very different type of show. And it's based on a true story. Uh, loosely, it's based on a memoir of this American who moved to Japan when he was 19 years old, kind of ran away from home, kind of ran away from his boring American life. And there's no real reason, no trauma that drove him there. And he started to live in Japan and he like learned language and went to school there and eventually became a journalist and found out that basically in Tokyo or in Japan in general, that the Yakuza, the gangsters kind of control the police department. As long as they don't break too many rules, they kind of get a free pass. And him being an outsider kind of started to expose this. And this is about 20 years ago that this memoir was written. And as a matter of fact, the memoir was written because, and this is outside the scope of the show, but he could not get his stories published in a newspaper. He just simply could not because it was like unacceptable that you would expose these things. It was disrespectful to these politicians and these powerful people, whether they be gangsters or businessmen, etc. And uh, so he went and he said, okay, it's fine. I'm just going to publish this on my own. And the book became a big bestseller because even in Japan, people were like, oh, someone's finally saying what's actually happening. So that's the background to this show which is fictionalized although most of what happens in the show actually did happen in real life by the way but uh i found this really entertaining it just wrapped up this week i know you haven't seen the finale so i will not spoil the finale for you but uh i will let you know that it does not wrap up the story like that if you remember all the way in episode one they are meeting ken watanabe and ansel elgort who are like the two main uh, actors or two of the main actors in the show are meeting with some yakuza and it seems like it's a very tense situation. That is not where season one wraps up. As a matter of fact, the show has not been renewed for season two. And they leave things open-ended, which is would be terrible if they do not renew it for season two. I hope they really do bring it back. But I really enjoyed this. I thought it was very well made. And uh, what was your experience? You and Carlos watched this together, right? Yeah. Oh, he loves this show. And he doesn't like certain shows because they're like too tense, too you know, whatever. But this show is interesting because it is tense in a lot of parts, but at the same time, it's got this um, other separate vibe. And we were talking about this because the actor himself, which I find amusing, he's like, what, six, three or something <laughs> yeah, wandering maybe, around. Six, four, I think, yeah. yeah. Tokyo. Like he's clearly not going to be incognito like when he's trying to hide from people like oh i see them on the street and i hope they don't see me of course they're going to see you or on dance floors i like his goofy dancing so he gives <laughs> the show like this kind of different vibe because 
he's just kind of like um, carefree and he just wants to do his job and he's on a mission and he's going to acclimate to Tokyo. And but behind the scenes, what's happening is really, really scary, horrid, yep. like creepy stuff. So. Yep. I find the vibe of the show very interesting. And then you care about this character. Like you don't want anything ha to happen to the yeah. goofy tall kid who's trying to run <laughs> around incognito in Tokyo to no avail whatsoever. Like you want him to succeed. Right. So, and, but yeah, I found that really interesting I, for the same reason you said, I thought that Ansel Elgort's very well cast here. I know people don't like him. They think he's really boring. I found him, I don't find him boring. I find in his blandness, and I, I don't mean that in an offensive way, I think that he is an, its own interesting uh, thing here, as opposed to, for example, I love Baby Driver as a movie. I love Baby Driver, right? I think it's incredible, but I do find him kind of boring in that movie. It's like not really <laughs> a fully fleshed out character. Here, I think he's way more interesting. I kind of see him, like you said, he's just this very Midwestern, probably very naive and the actor himself, I think, is 29 or 30 years old, and he's probably supposed to be playing someone who's even younger. So, yeah, he's very naive. He's very idealistic, as everybody is at that age. And I think it works well. And I also, like you said, I don't know if the author is the actual real-life author is actually this tall, but I do find it very funny to see this fair-skinned, fair-haired, six-foot-five guy walking around Tokyo. <laughs> very, you know, he's a, he's half a head over every man and a full head over every woman, <laughs> and like when he walks down the street. And he's in his, like, oversized suit that he's, he somehow inherited from his dad or something. I think it was the style back then. Maybe. I'm, like, I'm right. looking at his suit. I'm like, right. oh, I think he's, like, really, you know, styling that outfit from, you know, the 90s. Because yeah. I think this takes place in the 90s. But... It's early, it's early 2000s. It's early 2000s. But, but, but you're absolutely right, because if he like brought this suit with him from home, <laughs> it is a 1990-something suit, right? So Yeah. Well, I like his character because his character is believable. Mm -hmm. So I don't find him boring at all. It's like one of the parts I like the most about Tokyo Vice. Mm -hmm. And I like his friend, too. What's that guy? He's, he's a tortured character. He's the boyfriend of that girl. The uh, they the, both the guy, like the yakuza guy who's oh that they're both uh, kind of mixed in with. Yeah, yeah, I don't know. I don't know the actor's name, but yeah, he's very good. Uh, I think he's very good. If uh, the the one thing I'm surprised of on the show is Ken Watanabe, who's probably the most famous person in the show, is a little underused. I think they really did not give him enough to do here. He's the like the straight and narrow cop that he he works with, the older one. And uh, yeah, so I'm a little surprised that they didn't use him more. But I feel I like it could be a setup for season two. So yeah. there better be a season two. It <laughs> yeah, feels a little like a setup. Yeah, yeah there, there's a lot to explore here. I mean, once again, I'm not going to spoil the finale of season one, but there's so many unanswered questions at the end of season one that, you know, without, it's not just that season two is like, oh, there's a lot of stuff for them to talk about in season two. It's like without season two, this show doesn't make sense, <laughs> basically. So I really do hope they, uh, you know, they bring... Uh, they do bring it back for another season. I do find the girl annoying, the girlfriend. Like, she does really ridiculous things. Like, yeah. she was a Christian who stole $4 million from her dad. 4, 000, and 4 million yen. 4 million yen. So 40,000. 4 million yen. 40,000. How many? So that's $20,000 from her 40, dad. 40, yeah. And then she's like, I'm not going to do this anymore. I'm going to be a singer and a wine girl in a brothel, really. 
But oh, then yeah. I also yeah. want to start my own brothel because right. I've found my calling. I don't know if she correlates to a real life person. That's a complaint I have. Her whole storyline is not connected to the rest of the show. I mean, she's connected because she's the girlfriend, but I do feel like that whole thing is very underserved. Honestly, it feels like when they're writing this script, they're adding her in. You know, you have Ken Watanabe and what's happening inside the police department. You have him investigating the police. They're crossing paths regularly. You have this other gangster because he's inside the Yakuza and all these characters are interconnecting. And then you have her, Gisha-like, person like this uh i forget what they call like a comfort comfort woman they call her so at she, the she, same she, time yeah. all the miami like miami vice and all that there was always that oh, woman yes oh oh absolutely i'm just saying that it, you know it, it's not 1985 anymore so you could <laughs> give her a better character arc i would i would say once again i don't know if this correlates to a real life person because this, this story is kind of silly that she went there on a mormon mission and she <laughs> yeah. quits the church and decides to become a prostitute, basically. So it is a, it's a little extreme uh, pivot there for her. She could have been teaching English. <laughs> at, you know, she could have just teaching English or something. Most people would do that, I think, before they jump straight to prostitution. <laughs> but she says she's not a prostitute because she only, like, like, sips beer with people or whatever. Like, she doesn't actually do any of the prostitution stuff. That's why she's so horrified by that guy going, all right. Forget about the money. You just have to have 10 sessions with me. She's like horrified by this. I'm sure, I'm not sure, but I'm pretty confident that she has had sex with clients before. She may have done it for clients she liked spending time with. I think that's pretty standard for this type of, obviously not, you know, you have to do it off the books because it's not legal. But I think she's horrified because obviously it's very different when someone is blackmailing you to having sex rather than someone is coercing you into sex. You have made a decision to have sex with them as opposed to someone who's blackmailing you, someone who's trying to ruin your life. <laughs> it's, you know, basically it's a sexual assault in that regard. I feel like her character has to be in there because they have to have some sort of a love story. Yeah, yeah. That, that's where I feel that the show does a bad job. It's like almost like, well, we need more women in this show. And then, you know, they put her in there and they didn't do a good job of tying it all together, basically. So it would have been so much more interesting if she was actually from Tokyo. That's a criticism of the show, by the way. One of the criticisms of the show has been that you're discovering all about this Japanese culture through these white protagonists, which is kind of, you know, an, once again, another kind of old school way of telling this story. And my defense of that is, A, that this is based on an actual memoir, something that actually happened, right? And B, that it becomes our entry point to this culture as well, right? As Westerners, right? So I think that that works for his perspective, but I totally agree with what you just said before it, in the fact that unless she is a actual person based on someone who's actually in this, you know, this Mormon girl, unless that biography is true, and I don't know if it's true, it would be more interesting. Why can't she be a Japanese woman, right? Like, why do you need to have this white, another white Midwesterner that you know, stumbled into Japan and decided to turn into a prostitute, right? Like, why not, <laughs> why not have like some poor Japanese girl, one of these girls who was a model, which is a lot of these girls, right? And then little by little, they slide into this lifestyle, right? There are way more interesting ways to tell that story than, than that one. I sure, I agree. It makes it sound like we don't like it, but I, right. you know, yeah. everything else is great. Like I like the suspense. I like his character. Yep. I think he's very charismatic. I don't find him boring at all. I like that he's a little naive and I yep. want to know his backstory. Yep. He didn't just leave for no yep. reason. Like exactly. his sister is having some sort of issue. And she sends him all these tapes and he listens to them all the time. So he clearly misses her. I don't know what happened there. He is not happy with his dad. 
So maybe he did run away. I, I need a season two. Yeah. I need it. <laughs> yeah. I hope that we, we get one. Okay. So a couple of things I'll recommend to you and to audiences in general before we wrap up. And we can touch base again next week. Maybe we'll watch some more stuff and then get back together. Maybe we'll watch Shining Girls, which I do want to cover in some ways because I think it's a very interesting show, although I don't know. It's very ambitious. It's very confusing, by the way, when you watch those first few episodes. I saw the first two of the three that are available because I would say, I'll just put my review in here right now, that I found it very confusing. I don't know if people are going to have the patience to wait to see what's happening in this show. It has... But I think that what makes me interested in continue to watch it is Elizabeth Moss. She's so compelling. Like she is dealing with this trauma. She has some condition where she literally has to write down almost like memento, write down like the facts of her life because little details of her life keep changing. Like she shows up to her apartment and something's changed. She has a cat one day and now it's a dog and she keeps updating this in this spreadsheet. And she was horribly horribly brutally attacked years ago and she is now in an investigation by the way almost ties in with this with tokyo vice in that a lot of this has to do with doing journalism and investigation there's actually a bunch of shows like this now and the journalistic aspect of the show is interesting that she's trying to see if this other murder is associated to her assault but since this assault she has been losing having these episodes where things in her life seem to change around her and she thinks that she's just having some kind of memory loss or, or something strange happening to her we discover over the course of just the first episode that it's more than that i won't go into details because it's really not even clear what they're trying to convey yet but it is an interesting metaphor to imagine being so horribly brutally violated that kind of your reality is broken so that metaphor is interesting and when she is like talking about her experience she is so utterly compelling on screen i'm very curious to keep watching it but I think audiences are going to get really frustrated with the show, to be honest with you. But you oh, you no, maybe... that's like my jam. I love everything <laughs> you just said. The fact that it's confusing, <laughs> okay. like, intrigues me. I'm like, yeah. it's confusing. I can't wait. <laughs> okay, and good, I good. love her. She's so, a great, yeah, great so, actress. I'm such so a fan. Yeah. I'll watch anything she's in, like anything. So that's the first thing. Catch up on that. Maybe we'll talk about it next week. There's a full three episodes out this week, and there'll be only one next week. So by then, you'll be able to catch up on four of them, which is a lot. But maybe we'll touch base again next week and pick it up there. The uh, two recommendations I want to mention to you, one was brand new, just started. It's going week to week, so you don't have to binge it. It's just one hour per week. It's on HBO on Mondays. It's called We Own This City, and it is, speaking of journalism, it is from David Simon and the producers and writers that brought us The Wire years ago. The, so it's the same creative team as The Wire, mostly. And it is based on a true story about this gun task force in Baltimore. This is re really recent, just four or five years ago that this whole thing happened. And they were basically like the most exceptional police department in Baltimore. And it turns out that they are, and this not giving any spoilers away, we find this out basically in the middle of episode one, that they are running the gangs in the city. Like there was like the most corrupt police department. They literally are like stealing drugs from drug runners and then selling it back to them in the streets, right? <laughs> so it's, it's bananas. But it is a really fascinating story. It's just started this week, so I recommend everybody watch it. And just like you would expect for someone who did The Wire, it's very complex. So you see how there's these motivations, like politicians on the left want to have 
less harassment, but then police make fewer arrests. So crime rates go up. Then politicians on the right, they want more arrests because they want to just have arrests no matter what. And then they basically give these successful, quote unquote, groups carte blanche, and they end up basically saying, oh, we'll be the criminals. Great. We can do whatever we want. Right. And it just becomes so utterly corrupt. And there's layers and layers and layers of this corruption. And it's like really fascinating. And uh, it's only six or seven episodes, I think. And the first one came on this week and I recommend it. It's, that first episode is terrific and uh, it'll be going on for the next few weeks. And it's called We Own This City. And the other recommendation I have for you, uh, Celia, you might like this one. It just wrapped up this week. It's on Apple Plus. It's called Slow Horses. And it is based on a very successful series of books in the UK, in England. And it's called Slow Horses because there is a place in MI5, which is like the CIA of England, where the spies go when they screw up and it's called Slough House. And it's been, it basically anybody who's in Slough House, they call them slow horses. And what they are is these are the screw ups of MI5 and they get sent there. And what happens over the course of this show is that they get caught up in a conspiracy and similar in some ways to We Own the City, you start seeing that everybody's just trying to cover their own asses and the people in MI5, the, the, the real quote unquote spies are basically trying to pin all these horrible things, these mistakes that were made on these, you know, dim-witted, idiotic, bad agents. On the on, And then politically, you have the right-wing politicians are trying to pin everything on the left wing and the left wing politicians basically have set up this, inadvertently created this horrible situation, this circumstance that plays out in this season one. Basically, it turns out that in the long run, that these idiotic, supposedly inept spies are they only they can only rely on each other and uh, they have to basically uh solve this thing on their own and what i would say is it's slow going to start off it's only five episodes or six episodes i think six and uh it starts off slow but the last two or three episodes it really starts clicking you'll love the characters the characters are very lovable idiots <laughs> and uh it's extremely cynical like everybody other than these people who are like these rejects are in it for themselves and are screwing everybody else over. They literally cannot trust anybody else. That is, you know, basically the premise of the show. And the other reason I mentioned it is that at the end of this show, which really just starts kicking into gear at the very end, they already shot season two. It's already shot. And as a matter of fact, they show you a trailer at the end of season one of the entirety of season two. So it's like, stay tuned in a couple of months, you get the whole second season. It's right around the corner. So uh, I definitely recommend it. It's, it's slow to start, but once you get like halfway through, it's a lot of fun. And yeah, that's the other one. Slow Horses on Apple TV+. And that's it. Did you have any recommendations, anything you saw or listened to recently that you were a big fan of? I don't know about recently, but speaking of Elizabeth Moss, um, The Handmaiden is like one of my favorite series. The Handmaid's Tale. The Handmaid's yes. Tale. Yes. <laughs> it's like all-consuming dread at every moment in time. It's just dread and then awful things happen that you can't possibly imagine until you see it on the show <laughs> and there's no reprieve and i know that sounds crazy but i love dread <laughs> it's like watching a horror movie that never ends for 40 hours <laughs> for 40 hours so if you love horror movies this is what i feel this is and she's great in that show. So my recommendation is anyone who feels the same way about Dread that I do, 
they should watch that. I'm addicted. <laughs> that show just wrapped up, I guess, the last season recently, or like recently, like a year ago at this point. It's interesting what you said, because Kim watched that, I think first two seasons at least, and she gave up on it. And I've not watched any of it. And part of the reason I didn't watch it was because I heard how like relentless it was. I always plan to watch it eventually, but maybe I will and give you my opinion on like, you know, at least I'll watch some of it and then we'll get back together and discuss it next week or something because I'm a big fan of hers in general. But I think that that is something that, you know, when something's like so relentlessly grim, I, I, I love horror movies, by the way, but horror movies end after an hour or two, you know, like I like, I love hereditary, right? But I don't want to watch hereditary for, for 40 hours. I might kill myself at the, at the end of that. But you know? I, so. I, I think that like what, knowing the show is 40 hours or more of dread is um, a form of escapism if you mm -hmm. like a horror movie. Cause like, yeah, the horror movie's over and now like a few weeks later, you're, this is just continuous. Like there's something to be said about that. Like they yeah. sustained the mood so well throughout oh, I, the entire thing that like it's magical in a way. That's something I am a fan of. I think that the, my, you know, I think that the most important thing a director does, and I'll talk about this next week, but I think it's why outer range doesn't really work as a show is because it is too all over the place with the tone. And uh, that's probably why I end up laughing at things I'm not supposed to laugh at. <laughs> it's also why I laugh at a lot of horror movies sometimes because I like watching horror movies and I'll hear one's good. And then I end up laughing at it because I think tone management is a big problem. I think directors, their main job is tone management. And uh, I think you have to be very good at that to pull off a horror movie. And so uh, yeah, I'm very curious about what you're saying, but let me, let me sample it and I'll let you know. And that's where we left the conversation for now. Hopefully we'll be covering Shining Girls in the future. I'm still a little bit on the fence of as to whether we're going to go week to week on that one, but I will be watching it. So maybe I will have additional coverage here in this feed. Check in again on Monday for the next Better Call Saul episode, something I'm very much looking forward to. And possibly Sona and I will also be discussing Ozark. Is it possible we'll be able to watch any of Ozark, which is just out now, the final season? Maybe we'll have time to catch up on it over the weekend. Make sure you subscribe so you know when those episodes become available. And make sure you recommend this to other friends and family who may enjoy the conversation. Talk to you soon. Thank you.